Hi, I'm Marianne Baton, Director of Strategy and Collaboration with Workplace Strategies for Mental Health. Thanks for joining us today. I'm here with Dr. Javid Sakara, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Western University's Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. Dr. Sakara researches stigma and bias. We're going to talk about how we're all biased. We all have stigma despite our best intentions. It begins with a safe and open conversation to make changes to this, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for joining me here today, Dr. Sakira. And I know you've done a lot of work in the area of stigma, but let's start with a definition. How would you define stigma? So I would say there's a pretty straightforward definition uh, in my mind. Stigma to me is a concept of a negative association that might exist at an individual level in one's attitudes, but it can also be associated with a negative behavior that uh, typically uh, assigns a label to a category and then treats or behaves differently towards that category. So how do we differentiate between discrimination, which of course is against the law and is uh, an important concept for workplaces, and stigma. So I would be of the opinion that they're actually very much linked to one another. I think that stigma is and does lead to discrimination in the same way that many other things do. But stigma to me includes a lot more than discrimination. For example, it can be attitudinal. Um, without actually behavioral, even though a lot of those attitudes lead to behavior. But the other thing is it can also be embedded within our structures and within our organizations. So it can affect and influence discrimination despite uh, not necessarily being visible. Great. Can you give some examples of that, how we embed it? Sure. So um, a lot of times stigma gets embedded in policies. So if you're in a workplace where uh, you're working really hard to create psychological safety, you're encouraging people to speak up if they need help, but your policies actually disincentivize speaking up or people uh, perceive regulatory things as punishing them for speaking up, then you're going to counter any of the efforts to promote safety. Another great example comes from healthcare where you know, we have a big problem with well-being and burnout. We encourage health professionals to speak up, but a lot of regulators, a lot of license licensors of physicians in their regulations actually flag anybody who sought help for mental health. And uh, can that can be problematic for the future. In my practice, I encounter all the time young people who are afraid that accessing treatment will actually have a negative impact on their career. And, and it can have, right? Depending on the career, we think about um, pilots and we think about um, police officers and uh, how knowledge of a diagnosed mental illness can make a difference to their career. And yet, even in those areas, there's an evolution afoot about getting people help rather than just punishing them. Things are changing. Yes. It's beautiful to watch things change. It really is. We were, we were just talking about how 10 years ago when we said, yeah, we, we deal with workplace mental health, they would say, what's that? 
And now I think it's pretty common knowledge that we want people to feel well and we want people to have energy at work. When you talk about um, stigma uh, and specifically in the workplace, if you were advising an employer right now about taking those first steps towards identifying it and uh, dealing with it, what would your advice be? I think the first step starts with the question. In order for us to get feedback about how we're functioning as leaders within workplaces, we have to critically question assumptions about how we've done things for a very long time. We also have to appreciate that that's difficult to do when you're in the thick of it. One of the best ways to challenge those assumptions is to actually bring in some outside perspectives to engage with people who typically aren't at many of these tables, whether in your organization or without, but to um, begin to critically question how you've done things and how that may or may not be achieving your goals. From that step, you can begin to appraise how you can improve and begin that improvement. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking back to you saying about uh, encouraging people to speak up, but then having policies that may punish them for doing exactly that. But I also think about the people who have the stigma speaking up about um, their racism, their bigotry, their homophobia, and th- that in some workplaces they say, well, I have a right to voice my opinions as well. How do you help um, an organization allow those that are more vulnerable, marginalized to speak up, but that we're speaking up in a way that's respectful to everyone? I think that's a very fascinating question and it highlights a challenge in this whole process. It's a challenge that I've leaned into in my research. And I think that our entire paradigm of how we talk about stigma is problematic. A lot of what it's built on is this idea that there may be good people who don't stigmatize and perhaps bad people who do. So much of the stigma reduction uh, movement has been around the idea that perhaps we just need to take the bad people and train it out of them, which I've always felt is kind of ridiculous. Because what a lot of my research and others have begun to realize is that a lot of stigma happens without us being aware of it. And we're not ever going to be able to completely get rid of it because that's the way we are. We're inherently imperfect. The uh, assignment or uh, labeling of behavior as respectful is a good example of that. Um, A lot of times people who experience discrimination internalize that discrimination. And it becomes something that is a very powerful effect on their behavior. An example would be, you know, for any of us who've dealt with a telecommunications company, perhaps. Sometimes we're sensitized to a certain experience, right? I know that I'm often sensitized to being transferred multiple times or someone not really understanding what I'm trying to say. And so I'm sensitized even before I make that call. If you're in a workplace where you've experienced significant stigma or discrimination, you begin to be sensitized to perceiving it even in innocuous situations where maybe it's not there or in other situations where it's not intended. 
And that can be very emotional. What we often do, because we're set up to do it, is point that finger of blame, right? It's not us, it's them. Or it's not me, it's the organization. Or it's not the organization, it's the employees. And I think there's a problem with that kind of dichotomization. Because the truth is, it's everyone. It's all of us together. We can't address the problem unless we have the conversations. We can't have the conversations unless we open our minds and hearts to one another. And that does require creating the kind of healthy spaces where some of these very uncomfortable and emotional conversations can occur. Mm-hmm. Somebody the other day said to me, "You, when you feel that you may be attacked, you armor up so that then our response is automatically defensive. And it can perpetuate these things. But I remember, and it wasn't that long ago, that I said, I don't have any bias or prejudice. I really like everybody. I see people for who they are. And they did an exercise with us in in my university class called um, Unpacking the White Knapsack. And they said, do you expect to see people who look like you on television, in uh, movies, on greeting cards, in the dolls or toys that you play with. And up until that point, I had never even considered that because my privilege was so ingrained that of course it's going to look like me that I never noticed who was excluded. And uh, I feel like you're saying that I'm continually learning. I'm continually finding things out that I have assumed or overlooked. Yeah, that example is a great one. It's kind of exactly what we tried to do with a lot of my research. So what we tried to do was we began to give health professionals feedback that they have something called implicit stigma, similar to implicit bias, bias about people with mental illness that exists outside of their awareness and influences them despite their best intentions. We use something called the implicit association test, which is an online metric of uh, these biases and showed people that they may have a bias that people with mental illness are intrinsically more dangerous than people with physical illness. But what was fascinating was, you know, you take a hardworking person who has high expectations of themselves and you tell them, well, guess what? You know, despite your best intentions, you might discriminate. It's a very emotional piece of information. So what our research found is a lot of how we have these conversations has to appreciate our vulnerability, and it has to appreciate how we can't begin to teach or work towards compassion for others if we really don't build compassion for ourselves. You know, this morning I was teaching a seminar. I teach medical students. Uh, for several years and someone asked a question about what they should do and my answer was all that's good but until we take it easier on ourselves we're not going to be able to do what we need to do shaming guilting it's not an effective strategy for change we have to work on leaning in to that discomfort but also creating the kind of safety where that reflection and conversation can take place begin between and across uh, differences. Yeah. It's a tough thing because we, when we talk about things related to stigma, we get passionate, whichever side we're on. 
And so it becomes more difficult. But to create that uh, safer place also means that we might need to slow down a bit. And in, in medical school, in most workplaces, that's a challenge. Yeah, and we need to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my work has highlighted that we're, we have a tendency to walk away angry burn our energy in that anger or talking to other people about what just happened. What we're less likely to do is to try to have that conversation or to give that feedback and to do it in a respectful and open-minded way. Sometimes what we're hearing, we're perceiving uh, as stigma might be coming from a very different place. And it isn't until we have that conversation and build that relationship and connection that we can begin to, to hope for change. Change doesn't happen if we walk away angry or if we vent to our colleagues. It happens when we actually have the hard conversations. Mm-hmm. So here's an example. I was talking to a group of HR professionals and I made the statement um, that you people may be the last to hear about a problem between a manager and an employee it gets to a really critical stage. And the feedback that I got later was that me saying you people was interpreted as discrimination because the HR professionals were also Indigenous. And I was mortified that what I was saying could have been interpreted that way. So can you model for me a way that you could have given me feedback in the moment um, when there's a room full of people that would help me to understand without shaming me. Uh, I've encountered that as well in in a lot of work that I've done. And before I give you the example, I just want to say one thing about the people who are teaching about this. So through my experiences, of course, things like that come up. People are sensitized. I often experience challenging feedback from both sides and both extremes. What I've responded to that with is whenever I'm teaching about a topic like this, I have to construct time and space in the teaching to invite feedback about what's happening in a safe way. So every time I teach about it, even if it's a few minutes, I will explicitly say, if there's any feedback people have, I would really welcome it. I take feedback seriously. I've changed this session based on feedback in the past. And also when I'm having a discussion, I'm encouraging people to think of examples that may not fit with my assumptions. So I'll say if this is an example of stigma, I'll also say, and are there examples where you've seen that not happen? Because people appreciate when you create that space without them feeling pushed or pressured. In terms of how to have that conversation, it's usually not helpful after the fact and anonymized, right? If if I get a comment, uh, feedback about a teaching thing that I'm doing, it's anonymous and it just sort of says, you shouldn't have done this. It's not as helpful as if that party would be able to come up to me afterwards, maybe if not in the group, or even in the group to be able to say, you know, there's something that you said that I thought was fascinating. I know that you're coming from a good place, but the language that you used can often be interpreted in different ways by different people. Often when we say you, we may unintentionally perpetuate thinking or or believing that there's an us versus them. And so perhaps thinking of we, the collective we, is another way, a 
framing what you were trying to say. Yeah, that's great. You know what it reminds me of is a concept that I learned years ago called the most respectful interpretation. And that comes from a place of really believing that people are coming from uh, good intentions, but they may have spoken in a way that was less than uh, thoughtful or considerate. And, uh, and that's really where we all need to get to. Agree. It's it's also about having a kind inference, right? Like trying to start from a place of kindness. At the same time, it gets misinterpreted. This idea. I remember I was uh, privileged to hear Amy Edmondson, who's really done a lot of work on psychological safety, speak. And what she emphasized was this idea of psychological safety. It isn't the same as a safe space. And I think that's a really important point. Having a kind inference or taking the most sort of respectful interpretation doesn't mean that it isn't okay to feel uncomfortable. It also doesn't mean it's okay to tolerate abuse or discrimination or violence. That's another really important uh, aspect and nuance to the conversation. If we talk about having respectful conversations... Sometimes people find themselves, particularly with certain identities, in contexts where uh, trauma is being perpetuated, whether intentionally or unintentionally, or they find themselves in very uh, unsafe environments where, you know, we see harassment, mistreatment happening. And it's really important that um, there be structures that are set up to allow those kinds of unwelcome behaviors uh, be explored and people be held accountable for them. That is not mutually exclusive. It's part of ensuring you have all the pieces set up to address the challenge. Yeah, and and we talk about that if you have a, a workplace where there's no conflict, where there's no disagreement, it's probably very unsafe because conflict, a difference of opinion should always happen when you're getting people to be creative, to be innovative, to think through problems. It just doesn't have to be a personal attack. But as you say, sometimes we interpret it that way, and it is that trust that allows us to explore that, to tease it out. Now, I know a lot of um, leaders are afraid of having these conversations because they're worried that about the emotion that will arise and that they're not equipped to deal with it, that they're not able to um, deal with someone who continues to behave in a stigmatizing or even discriminatory way. Um, do you have advice for those hesitant leaders that don't I, have your I skill do. set? I yeah. do. You know, it's a challenge I find. Um, I think it's a societal problem that we're afraid of emotion. It's bigger than us. Um, It it shows itself in so many ways, like a lot of efforts to reduce stigma and improve wellness um, become this exercise in toxic positivity, right? Where everything's okay. I love that view. Everyone's great and just everyone's just so happy and nothing's wrong at all. The truth is that's just as dangerous as not talking about it. Um, this is messy stuff. It's uncomfortable stuff. But it's also what makes us richer, 
more productive. And we know that. We know the return on investment. You don't need to prove it to anybody if, if they're willing to listen. Um, on one hand, you know, there's an instinct that we would say to leaders like that, well, get over yourself. Leadership is about being and doing. If you're in it to do something uh, versus to be someone, then this is all part of the journey. So I would say if anybody wants to be a leader, um, having emotional competence is just as essential as perhaps competence in other domains. But at the same time, we also have to take it easy on ourselves. So if, if you're coming at things with a clear conscience and a kind heart and you want to develop your skills, there's a lot of ways to do that. That comes with the caveat that managing emotions isn't a skill that you can check in a box. It's a constant process. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do here isn't about a rubric with boxes we can check. It's about a constant process of creating and co-creating workplaces that are thriving. It doesn't begin and end. It's a journey. And, uh, you know, one of my research papers, we talk about the idea of striving while accepting. So I share that all the time. We can strive for the best version of ourselves, for that ideal. But we're not going to move the needle until we also accept that we'll never be perfect and that we'll always have shortcomings. So it's essential that we take it easy on ourselves and remember that striving while accepting can still get us to where we need to be. You know, it's interesting. When I started talking about workplace mental health, I would talk about what it is, how we do it, how we lead. And I realized that there were some people who were just thinking it was unattainable. So I started talking about all the ways I've messed up, all the mistakes I've made and continue to make. And that allowed people to resonate with what I was talking about on a different level to say, oh, there isn't an ideal end state where you become perfect, that it really is um, based on having the right intention. I think that we can start to um, maybe not perfect, but be more consistent. But we're still going to say or do the wrong thing for people from time to time. And it is understanding that. And I think it's the compassion that you talk about is I've met managers who have made a mistake and then they just withdraw completely. It's like, I'm not going there anymore. Uh, I, this person had a meltdown on me and I can't take it and I'm not going to do it. Instead of saying, what can I learn from that? How can I go forward? Yeah, Brene Brown calls it the courage to be vulnerable, yes. right? We see it all the time, how transformative it can be, how having that courage to be vulnerable and human can break a cycle of disconnection and toxicity. It, it it's a different way of thinking about leadership in, in organizations. I remember uh, not too long ago, I was speaking to uh, someone who works more in motivation and coaching, and they said, well, you know, our motto is um, something like escape mediocrity to achieve excellence. And I said, that's really fascinating. But I would say my motto is embrace mediocrity to achieve excellence. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think that we have to really think about uh, perfectionism and this toxic positivity and how it drives us towards the wrong destination. It ends up uh, efforts to reduce stigma that um, 
try to sanitize things can actually cause a lot of harm. I see students all the time when I give talks about stigma or mental illness come up to me and and tell me how hard it is because they feel like they have to be the best. Mm -hmm. And I can appreciate why that's the case. We live with messages constantly inundating us about things that foster social comparison, that uh, reinforce how there are people or things or organizations that are better that we need to keep moving towards. And when we have conversations about it, I think it's really important to be honest, not with others, but with ourselves, because they're not mutually exclusive. You can still try to be better, but you have to embrace your humanity. If we continue to dehumanize one another intentionally and unintentionally, we're never going to achieve the kind of healthy, uh, psychologically safe organization that we hope for. Yes. So that leads me to the next um, request of you, which is you're saying that if we are stigma-free, if we are inclusive, we're still not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So can you paint a picture for what a stigma-free workplace might look like? So I would push back and I say we will never be completely stigma-free. I think that's a different way of framing the challenge. I think we can be healthier. We can be more safe. But again, if we speak of it and use language like it's a destination we can achieve, it changes things. That doesn't mean we can't be better. So one of the the most amazing things about um, Canada is we have the Mental Health Commission who've released standards on what a psychologically safe or a healthy workplace should look like. There's a lot of things that we can use as a bit of a litmus test in our organizations to see how we're tackling the problem. I think that we tend to see stigma as something disconnected from uh, psychological safety when it's right. It, it's very much intrinsically linked. We can't create a workplace where we, we encourage people to speak up and ask for help if needed and take care of their mental wellness and health if we don't have a a workplace where people feel psychologically safe related to to work matters. They're both very much connected. So you can build a wellness program or you can increase uh, benefits for people to access care, but if you don't ensure that people feel that they can be open, honest, and vulnerable, then that's not going to work. You can create, uh, you know, fora for leaders to share their experiences, but if people give feedback and speak up and feel like that goes nowhere, it's not going to work. You know, I've heard of many organizations who run yearly surveys about how people are feeling, and then two or three years go by and they're like, nobody's doing the survey anymore. Get people to do the survey. Well, that's an example of what's wrong with an organization, right? People have been doing the survey. They've been sharing their feedback. They're not doing the survey because they perceive that you haven't done anything with their feedback. Maybe you have, and maybe you've had tangible things you've done, but for some reason it's not translating, uh, and you're not effectively communicating it to people within your organization. Right, or it's not trickling down to the day-to-day experience. 
that you may have the policies in place, some programs that people can access, but the way we treat each other on a daily basis hasn't changed and therefore the employees don't feel it. So yeah, it's, um, it, it is something that um, from a business case, when employees can be authentic, when they um, are psychologically well, that they also have improved energy and focus. And I think that the business case has been made that this is profitable, this is striving towards organizational excellence. I'm not sure we've convinced senior leaders of that yet. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, The business case has been made. It's been made for decades, frankly. It's unequivocal. There's no question that this works, and it, it makes for better, healthier, more economically viable, profitable organizations. Um, and it's not that I think senior leaders haven't been convinced. I think that not all senior leaders have been convinced. Some have, and they're demonstrating great success in moving the needle. Uh, I also think that there's some senior leaders who may have uh, bigger challenges within their organizations, that this seems like something that they can uh, push aside. And some of them don't have resources. So they push the topic of wellness or stigma reduction to the side of other people's desks instead of integrating it within their organization. But I think the most problematic thing I've seen, because things are changing, is when people or senior leaders try to tackle the problem but do it in an inauthentic way. You know, sometimes people will be advertising all the great things they do about well-being and stigma to the outside world, but not really having hard conversations in the inside. And not really appraising and evaluating what they're doing with their own front line. There's nothing that erodes that trust more than when people in the organization feel that leaders are not authentic and not really engaged in, in... some of the messiness of the corporation and aren't balancing that external face with what's actually happening within. So it has to be uh, an approach for leaders, not just to get it, right? Of course you want them to get it and know the ROI, but to not feel like they can fix it quickly. Right. I often say to senior leaders and to frontline leaders that if the only thing they do, if they don't have the money and the resources and the time to do, uh, you know, a big implementation of psychological health and safety practices, to just ask the question, how will this policy, process, change, conversation, decision impact the psychological safety of our employees, if they only did that, it will change their conversation and make them more aware as they go forward. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you one other question. I'm thinking about the people out there um, that may have been like me and thought, well, I don't have stigma. I don't have bias. I'm, you know, uh, open. And, And they may have realized through this conversation that Oh shoot! Maybe I do. <laughs> maybe maybe I've got some that is in there that I'm not even aware of. What would you give as advice to those folks? How can they start to make a difference? So there's lots they can do, um, and it's it's a message that they're not alone. You know, I research this. 
I practice this. I'm just as flawed and imperfect as they are. There's no ideal. Um, ultimately, the realization is an uncomfortable one because it's, a, it's an acceptance of uh, a shortcoming to a degree, but it's also inherently human. So in some ways, it's actually a superpower. We, by recognizing our vulnerability and that sometimes we need help, that we're not perfect at everything, have a superpower because it allows us to truly lean into those experiences of vulnerability that others might have. The only way to do that is to get outside our own heads. We have to get feedback. We have to have conversations. We're always going to have blind spots. Uh, you know, an example is when we look at gender, right? As a male, I'm always going to have blind spots. There's no way that I can ever appreciate what, what the experience is for someone who's a colleague who might be female. And the only way that I can lean into that discomfort is to talk to them. If we took 12 men, we had them design a women's bathroom, probably wouldn't be a great bathroom, but we do it all the time. So the realization is, is something you need to lean into. Take it easy on yourselves. Lean into the discomfort and remember that if you want to make a change, it starts with conversations and feedback about how you're doing. And from there, appreciating that you can make change, but you don't have to strive for an impossible destination. You can be a role model. Um, the, the question you raised about leaders earlier, the one thing they can do is to be role models. They can model the courage to be vulnerable. And when we open that up, when we share with others, hey, I'm just, I'm doing the best I can, it actually has a transformative effect on how things go. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom and your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully people, imperfect people like me, can learn from what you've shared today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for spending this time with us. Stigma exists in policies and processes, especially those that discourage or even punish people who speak up in the workplace. Yet, it's having uncomfortable conversations, but those that start from a place of kindness that will make the difference. As Dr. Sakara said, striving for this while accepting where we are can get us to the place we need to be. We hope you found this podcast interesting and helpful. If you did, please share it and other helpful resources from Workplace Strategies for Mental Health on your social media channels, hashtag Workplace Strategies. And please visit our website for free materials that support employee success in your workplace. Thank you.